challenges of getting older when you have a birthday is expectation. When you were a kid and it was your birthday, you couldn't wait. You wanted to know what your mom or your dad or whoever got you as a gift, if they got you a gift. Anticipation. When you get older, you know what the gifts are because you know what you can and can't afford. <laughs> and you buy your own gifts. It's a little different. The anticipation is gone. Most of the stuff you want, you ain't getting on your birthday. So, so there's that. But it's always grateful. Grateful for that. All right. Let's, let's get back into Romans chapter 8. We have been talking about sort of being obligated to the flesh from verses 12 and 13. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter six and really walked through just sort of the weapons of that the Christian has to fight against being obligated to the flesh. This is just a reality that we have to remind ourselves a lot because we will feel obligated to the flesh for many reasons. Many reasons. Some of those reasons will be just our personalities. We tend to think of ourselves, we take these personality tests, Enneagram or whatever, and those things sort of define us. Okay, I'm an Enneagram 8 with a 9 wing, so I'm a bull in the china closet and I'm laid back. Cool. But that's not scripture. That's not the Holy Spirit. I don't need to obey the personality test of Enneagram. We get discouraged by the power of temptation. Sometimes we even deceive ourselves that we know what limit will allow ourselves to get to. We can get this close to the line, but we're not going any further. But we often don't realize that there's ice underneath the mud. And we just slip and often sometimes cross the line. We feel obligated to the, to the flesh because of the past pleasure of sin. There are just some things that we just, they're pleasurable. We know that sin is evil and we know that it's sinful. We know that it's wrong. But often that's what we have to train ourselves to think through the spirit. It's not our normal disposition. A lot of times the things that we are not supposed to do are things that we get the most pleasure from. When I, was a, when I first became a Christian, it took me years to train myself to not laugh at the things that used to be funny to me before I was a Christian. I would laugh at certain things that were violent, things that I did, or laugh at certain character traits about people. I would laugh at those things, and then I had to realize that, man, Jesus died on the cross for this. It's actually not that funny. And then as I got older and more mature, it was like, it's not funny at all. But there was pleasure in that sin. So it makes us feel obligated. The lack of confidence in the weapons that we talked about last week. The slow dying to the desire to please God. All these things, all these things make it possible for us to feel like we're obligated when we're tempted, when we feel that temptation. We're obligated to give in. To be honest with you, I think many of us, if we were being honest, we're actually discouraged at being tempted. Some of us are so discouraged at being tempted that we confuse temptation with sin. 
Like just because I'm even tempted with this thought, it, it feels like I've given in already. That's not really true. There is a difference because if temptation were sin, then Jesus sinned and he can't be our savior. It's easy to lose confidence in real power. So we do things to distract us from temptation. Some of us, and I know I've done this, have even felt embarrassed to go to God because we're tempted with serious sin. We have serious thoughts and we think like, man, I don't even want to go to God. Like, listen, as if somehow the, the thought that I'm having or the desires that I feel are somehow pushing God away from me. Like, how could I think this way? When the reality is, God says, listen, get closer to me and you won't act that way. We try to fight with willpower instead of real power. We distract ourselves. I'd rather watch something than pray for an hour. Struggling with anger. You watch something, it makes me laugh. But then the next time I see the person I was angry at, it kicks right back in. Because that joke from yesterday isn't helping me take seriously what I need to take seriously today. I could have spent more time in prayer asking the Lord to help me. We focus on putting off instead of putting on. Do you realize that when you only focus on putting off, it doesn't mean you automatically put on. And if you focus on putting off anger so much, do you know you spend more time thinking about anger? But when you put on joy, you're automatically putting off anger. See, it's not automatic when you put off that you put on, but when you automatically put on, you automatically put off. This is why the language in the New Testament and the spirit is different. It's look, put to death that, but put on this. It's we act this way. Because when you're acting this way, if I'm struggling with what, and I feel like complaining and I'm negative, and I start putting on joy and gratitude and thinking about things that I'm thankful for, from the smallest to the largest, you automatically put off negatively, complaining. You know why Jesus says pray for your enemy? Because you're not going to hate someone you're consistently praying for. Over time, your heart is going to soften towards this person. So he says pray for your enemy. Because at some point, your heart is going to soften towards that person and they won't be an enemy anymore. At least from your side of things. Being obligated to sin robs us of the very truth of Romans 8, 14. Where he says this, for all those led by God's spirit or God's sons. For all those led by God's spirit or God's sons, this, this, this robs us of this reality. Feeling obligated to the flesh doesn't make us feel like we're sons and daughters to the king. But he says in Romans 8, 14, for those who are led by God's spirit or God's sons. You see, this is the perfect identity informs obedience statement. Those who are led by God's spirit or God's son. God's sons, daughters. God has no cousins or grandchildren. It's sons or daughters. Now, in our day and age, 
we're so separated from when the Bible was written that statements like led by God's spirit for us confuse us. We start thinking almost like this holy zap. Like you just wake up and read today and you just open to proverb and it's like, that's what I needed for today. And then you expect God to just zap you when you go into work and just get everyone coffee. And they're like, man, you've changed. It's the love of God. Some of us want that. And that's good. I think that's good to want to be godly in that way. But we want to be godly without the cross, though. See, godliness without the cross. And by cross, I mean the one that Jesus said, take up your cross. See, godliness without the cross isn't godliness. See, godliness with the cross is something different. It's, it's, the, it's the pain of dealing with the temptation to fight against those things, to glorify God, to act the way he commands us to act. But we want godliness without the cross because we want to we all be godly without the effort put in. That's not the way it works. Identity informs obedience. We don't want godliness without the effort doesn't last. If you go to Mark 4, right, Jesus had these four. He's telling this parable of the sower. And he talks about these, these, the seeds that were sown in different parts and different situations. And he says, one seed landed on the rock and it sprouted up very quickly. But because it wasn't in good soil, when the sun shone on it, it withered and died. And then when he explained it to the disciples, what does that mean? He said, these are people that hear the word. They respond with a lot of zeal, but because they're not really rooted in Jesus. When when temptation and, and, and suffering comes because of the word, because of your faith in Jesus, those people wither away. You see, that's godliness without Taking up your cross. Taking up our cross and the character that comes from it is what the Bible's after. In Acts 3, 26, Peter said to the Jews, he said, and God sent him, Jesus, to you first to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. How many of us feel like it's a, it's a blessing to be turned away from wickedness? I just feel like I'm being pulled apart or ripped apart. Because I really want to say and do this, but man, I can't give into that. Or if I fall and give into that, I got to go back and say I was wrong. And I don't want to even say that I was wrong. Identity informs obedience. We don't fight for not for fighting's sake. Being led by God's spirit is not this zap. That we just walk off and we just obey God without effort, without struggle. No. Think about what these people thought. Would they have thought like, oh, you just got to get zapped by God? Where else would you see that in Scripture? Jesus never said that. He said, take up your cross and follow me. When it says those who are led by God's spirit, this just means these are people motivated to resist sin and honor of the Lord. He's talking about people whose obedience comes from faith in Jesus. And then Paul's particular moment when he's writing this is faith in Jesus or faith in the law of Moses. So don't think for a moment that that's not still the main issue for Paul. When Paul's thinking about unbelievers, he's not thinking about unbelievers the way you and I are. He's thinking about unbelievers also or people who reject Jesus to try to honor the Mosaic law. 
trying to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, which no one can do. So when he says being led by the Spirit, this isn't a, 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 a sort of like the conjuring. We, you know, the way we see stuff like in Hollywood. No, 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 no. This is just people who are, I believe in Jesus and my obedience is because of him. Paul says, oh, these people got the Spirit in them. You're led by the Spirit. This is what he's talking about. These are people who have a desire to live out the fruits of the Spirit and honor the Lord by what they do. It's not just obedience for obedience sake. Look, there's a lot of good Muslims out there. I know some people that are non-Christians that act better than Christians. More humble, natural disposition. But what makes us different is when we obey, we do it because we want to honor the Lord. And that's the one thing that Jesus also perfected was the motive. I always do what pleases the Father. So he puts in us a desire to please the Father. Because if not, then what are we obeying for? Who wants to resist sexual pleasure that feels good for what? Who wants to resist that stuff? Who wants to resist telling somebody how you, when you're really angry and you just want to explode? Who wants to resist that? You resist it because now that doesn't honor the Lord. What fruit of the spirit is that? That's what it means to be led. If that's who you are, you are this verse. It's not real spiritual in the sense that we find find spiritual. It's you're led by God's spirit to honor the Lord. Identity informs obedience because if it doesn't, then our disobedience will deform our identity. If our identity does not inform our obedience, our disobedience will inform our identity. Look at what he says in Romans 8, 15. He says this. After saying you're led by the spirit, you're sons of God. Here's what he says in Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Listen to this. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So he's contrasting these two ideas, slavery in the spirit or spirit of slavery or the spirit of adoption. He says this in the rest of verse 15. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption of whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you got slavery or adoption. The first half of this, it, it brings us back to that being obligated to the flesh, but from a different angle. He adds a little bit more to it. Like if we live obligated to the flesh, then we are acting out of a spirit of slavery. We fall back into fear. Why do we fall back into fear? Listen to the language. We fall back into fear. Because it's familiar. Familiarity. It's easy to fall back into something that you've been doing for a long time. If we live obligated to the flesh, we're acting out of a spirit of slavery. We fall back into fear. Fear of what? Hebrews 2 gives us some insight. Verses 14 and 15, he says this in Hebrews 2. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, 
Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. He says, this, we're not you didn't receive a, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, fear of what a fear of standing before God. And being judged for your sin, a fear of not having confidence that you're going to see a father, but instead a judge. A fear of death, which no believer is supposed to have, according to Scripture. Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Every genuine believer may not. Don't get me wrong. We don't have to have a death wish. I want to see my kids grow up. I joke with my my kids all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll just start dancing in the kitchen and be like, son, this is how I'm going to dance at your wedding, like this. Now I'd be like, no, Poppy, stop saying that. I was like, yeah. This is how I'm going to dance at your wedding, like this, son. <laughs> I want to see him get married. But if I die, I'll watch it from up there. The fear that we fall back into. Is a, is, a, is a fear that God has taken us away from. This is why when you live in sin and you keep falling, you know what happens? Your confidence in the Lord gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you start to question if you're really even a believer because you've fallen back into this spirit of fear. Now you don't want to die because you don't want to see the Lord. You don't want to see the Lord. You're afraid of what he's going to say. You don't even want to pray because you're afraid of what he might say in your prayer. This isn't what we're supposed to be as believers. So, so God is reminding us, listen, you are led by God's spirit. I didn't give you a spirit to fall back into the same habits and patterns that you have. And to the mastery of them, obviously, many of us still have some of the same patterns and habits after conversion. But all of us have the ability to say no to them. Will we have certain struggles? Absolutely. 100%. To the day we die, 100%. But there's a difference between I have this and I'm giving into this. There's a difference between I struggle with anger or anxiety and I'm overcome by it. There's a difference. And one of them is just desire. I know people who are overwhelmed because they struggle with anxiety, but they hate it and they don't want to be angry and they pray against it, but it doesn't always go away. That pleases the Lord. There's a difference between, well, that's just who I am. I'm sorry. I'm just a warrior. That doesn't please the Lord. Because a warrior, a, not a warrior, a warrior. You don't want to be a warrior for being a warrior. A warrior, warrior. That's a tongue twister. No, we don't want to. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the hatred towards it. It's the, it's the asking for God's help for it. The eternal reality is that God didn't save us to lead us back to a fear of him so that we can be enslaved to temptation and sin. These statements are meant to give us a confidence 
that our identity, and remember this from God's perspective, right? God is speaking through Paul to us. So this isn't just what Paul thinks. This isn't what I think. This is what God says. You have to remember when you read the Bible, almost every word is spoken from God's perspective to people. It's not spoken from Paul's perspective of what he thinks about God. And when he says that, he makes qualification in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, on this issue, I, I do not have a word from the Lord, but here's what I think. He makes qualification. This isn't speak I, not the Lord, so to speak. But the rest of it is from God to us. And God's perspective is that, listen, your relationship and mine towards you has drastically changed because you believe in Jesus. And he proves it in the rest of verse 15. He says this, instead, so you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is from God's perspective saying, you've received the spirit that you cry out, Abba, Father. Two different words, similar meaning, but different connotation. Abba is an informal word. Abba means Daddy. It means daddy. Father is more formal. It's more formal. You say, well, this is my father. It's like, oh, okay. Normally when people, sometimes when people introduce people as their father, you, kinda, you can tell what kind of relationship they had. When someone says, this is my dad, it, just, it seems more intimate, right? Well, see, we have both here. There's both. There's one from God's perspective. You're my children and I'm your daddy. And my spirit is giving you that, that you can call me, that you can appeal to me as your daddy, that, that intimate relationship. But then I'm your father. Also, that, that sort of formal, reverential, like, whoa, that's my father. That's, that, that acknowledges the, the first person of the Trinity, the significance of his, his character, his role in all things. He's the first person of the Trinity, the Father, but he's also my dad. From his perspective, this is what he says I've given you and want you to call me, to relate to me. Daddy and Father. You know, my kids... We've never, I've never even asked them why they do this, but when my kids have friends that come over, like if their buddies come over and play and hang out. Okay, so my kids, they all call me Poppy. My wife is Latino, so they, Latino, so they call me Poppy. It's just dad in Spanish, but, but it's, more, it's, it's more of an intimate thing for them. Poppy, like it, it means something to them that's more than just my dad. There's, there's love and relationship and all of that, even though it's just a Latino word for us. Poppy is something more intimate. But when their friends come over, they always call me dad. <laughs> They'll be like this. Hey, dad, do you mind if I'm like dad? What's he? <laughs> like dad is formal to me like dad. But I get it. I get it. You know why they do that, I think? I've never asked them. I'm going to ask them, actually. I'm going to ask them on Father's Day. <laughs> but you know why I think they do that? 
because they understand that that's a poppy is something more intimate. That's personal. And you all can't get into that personal relationship. You can't call your dad. Your, you, that's, that's your poppy. No, 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 no. That's my dad to you. They recognize that it's just a little bit more of an intimate relationship. Like, I don't want to I don't want you to see that. This is my dad. You can understand what that means. But Poppy, that means something else. You know, I, when I grew up, my nickname was Cece because my name is Curtis Charles Allen. So I was known as Cece all over the streets. But my mom had a particular nickname. She nicknamed me something else from Cece. And anytime anyone hears that and knows about it, they might joke around and call me that from time to time. But you know what, though? It doesn't sound nothing like when my mom says it. When she calls me that name, that means something totally different than when you say it. When you say it, I'm like, man, go ahead, man. Sometimes I even get tempted, like, don't call me that, man. I don't ever say that, but I'm like, man, don't call me that. That's my mother's name for me. You know why? Because it's personal. It's intimate. When my mom calls that name, there's a lot of history there. When my kids call me Poppy, that's something different. God says, listen, you have an intimate relationship with me. You call me daddy and the spirit that I've given you allows that to take place. God is communicating from his perspective. I see y'all differently. Here's the question. Do you see him that way? Do you see him as daddy? Or do you see him as a distant kind of stern father? who kind of loves you kind of theoretically, but you don't really feel it practically. If you do not, pray and ask the Lord to help, to help change that. I bet you that's the enemy lying to you. And it's hard. Don't get me wrong. Listen, this is all by faith. I didn't grow up with a dad at all. I used to get my mom Father's Day cards until like about seven or eight years ago I stopped. Somewhere, I forgot when, maybe 10 years ago. I gave my mom Father's Day cards the majority of my life, not because she was my dad, but I wanted her to know I respect the fact that you raised me and my brother without a man in the home. I respected the fact that my mom did what she could to raise us. It's difficult for a woman to raise a man. It's difficult. There's just things that don't always make sense. What they said, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Well, we all from Earth, but we from different parts of the Earth. It's, it's difficult. My mom raised a man. So I used to give her Father's Day card to honor that. That was another level of relationship that I wanted her to know. I respect you in that even. I remember when my dad, when I was, when I was just short of, I was about to go to court for the, for the gun charges and things that I had called, and I was looking at 40 plus years. And so I thought I was gone. And we thought, so my mom contacted my dad and, and told him, you need to come see your son. I hadn't seen him in years, maybe 10, 11 years. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And she, I don't know what she said, but I remember something, you need to come see your son because he's, he may go to prison for the rest of his life. And so he came to, he contacted me and asked, could he see me? And I said, sure. And when I met up with him, he was, a, he was exactly what I said to him. I said, look, I'm going to be honest with you because I have the same first name. as His name is Kurt Curtis. And I said, look, I'm going to just be honest with you. Like, I'm going to call you dad out of, like, respect for the fact that you, I came from you. 
but I'm not calling you dad as a, as a result of relationship. Like, it's too late for that. Like, if you, if you can handle just being my friend, then we can, we can connect. But it's too late for you to give me the lecture on being a man now. It's too late. I don't want to hear it. Like, you weren't dead when you needed to be. You don't, you don't get that. He said, I respect that. He said, I respect it. I respect it. I wouldn't let him think that me calling him dad meant he was poppy to me. My mom was poppy to me. But here's the question. Is the father poppy to you? I had to grow in this because I didn't have a dad. It took me a while before I started seeing it. Honestly, to be honest, for me personally, it took me having kids to see God as father because I just loved them so much and they just still make me laugh a lot. I was able to just pour out love and affection on them and just be in ways that I never had from a dad. It was having kids that helped me understand, okay, made it, for whatever reason, it just made it easier for me to accept God as father. It was difficult because I didn't have that connection. So it, it requires faith to believe this to be true, but it is as true of us as we'll stand before God and our sins will be forgiven. If you have confidence because of faith in Jesus that when you die, you're going to stand before God and get to go to heaven, then you have to have confidence that he's your Abba Father, that he's your dad too. And this doesn't minimize your earthly dad. There are people in this room that have fantastic relationships with their earthly dad, and there are people that don't have them at all. God isn't talking about in comparison to whatever you had on earth. He's talking about who I am in eternity to you. This is our dad, daddy. And this is exactly how Jesus cried to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, all the other prayers that Jesus did, it was a little bit formal, like, Father, I've I prayed this so that they would know that you are. And he'd say, I've, I've, I'm glorifying myself and I'll do it again. All those were kind of formal, but when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's when Jesus is praying to Abba. It's personal now. We have to relate to God on a personal level, not a theological one. We know he's father theologically. No, he's your dad. Verse 16 says, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Another one of those phrases that because we're so far removed from it, we think like, man, how does the spirit testify? What does that mean? The challenge is it's it's actually so casual that it doesn't feel like it's the spirit. It feels like it's just us. See, again, because we want the spirit to be constantly Sort of like the force, this sense where it's like, man, let me bring that chair over here real quick. <laughs> Knowing good and well, if that chair moved when I did that, we'd all be gone. <laughs> I'd be in my car as soon as it twitched, <laughs> praying and wondering what happened to y'all. I've seen too many movies. So we want the spirit to kind of act like the force where it just glows and it feels in it. So if you're old enough to remember, remember, show nuff. If you're old enough to remember that when he was dunking him in the water and the last dragon and then he pulled him up and all of a sudden this yellow glow came over him. And now he was ready to fight sure enough. 
And it was like the Matrix back then. Just like this, his arms was swinging and it was all types of stuff. And he was just filled with this yellow glow. And a lot of us want the spirit to feel like that. And so when we read these passages, we get confused and worried, thinking, man, how do we know the spirit's testifying to us that we're God's children? Well, it's casual. It's casual. Let me, let me, let me, let me prove this from the actual scriptures. I've said this before, so you, this shouldn't be new. But let me just say this. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Here's a, here's a scene. Watch, watch what happens right here. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? Who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Now, think about what just happened. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, oh, you the Messiah, the son of God. Casual. What was supernatural about it? Did we get no indication from the passage that when he asked that question that Peter was like this? You are the Messiah. The son of God. Oh, so, well, that's not what happened. Peter just answered the question and he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But the father did. You see how casual that was? Peter just acknowledged and Jesus is saying, look, flesh and blood is not going to just acknowledge that I am the Messiah. It takes a work of the spirit, a supernatural work for you to believe that I am the Messiah. To believe that I am the son of the living God, capital S, understanding that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was casual, but it was supernatural. It wasn't deducted from just evidence, according to Jesus. Jesus says, look, flesh and blood didn't confirm this to you, but the father did. See, we tend to think of led by the spirit of things in the spirit. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I have been in situations where the spirit was acting supernaturally. So I am not saying that does not happen. What I'm talking about is in this passage, Paul is not saying that that is the activity that he's describing. It's what we impose on the text. I have been in the presence. We're like, whoa. This, and I'm not talking about people falling out, laughing uncontrollably, barking. And I'm not talking about that. I can do that watching a good comedy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real supernatural work like, wow, this is the spirit. This is going on. I ain't talking about just goosebumps. The spirit, it's casual. It testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. It just means you have confidence that you belong to God. You believe in God. It testifies. You have confidence. It doesn't mean that confidence isn't going to get rocked or shaken at times. But it means that you truly believe that you belong to the Lord. No genuine Christian should constantly be wondering if they really belong to the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't work out our salvation with fear and trembling. No, 
It doesn't mean we don't examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. It doesn't mean that. But it doesn't mean that we should be walking around constantly questioning because the spirit confirms and it's casual. Your desire to read, pray, share the gospel, do ministry, love other believers, genuinely grieve about what other people feel like. You're, that's all a part of it. Listen, we give ourselves too much credit. Like we just don't normally feel that way. You don't normally want to do things that God asks you to do. And if you do, it's only because the spirit's been working in you long enough that you desire to do it. Outside of the spirit, people are Ephesians 2, dead in transgressions and sins. The reason why I use that language dead. Think about that language. It's using that language. People are alive, right? There are people that may be in this room that aren't believers yet. According to the Bible, you are dead in transgressions and sins. There are people right now that are all around us that are dead in transgressions and sins, but they're walking around. So what is this, the walking dead? No. He's using language because he's speaking spiritually. They have, they're dead without any, you can't just bring yourself to life. You have no ability to want to glorify God on your own. It will not last unless the spirit is at work. You can do some things for a while, but then at some point it's like, man, that's odd. I don't these commands are too burdensome. I try, but it's just not working. Where's all the blessing at? I've known people to ask that. I've been paying tithes. Where's the blessing at? That you've been paying tithes? That's the blessing. That's the blessing. It's part of it. That you have a desire to honor the Lord with your finances is a blessing. Remember Acts 3.26. To turn you away. God decided to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. From God turning away from wickedness and helping people do that is a blessing. Why? Because if you don't turn away from wickedness, you're going to experience his wrath for eternity. And you don't want that type of smoke. So he says, look, I'm blessing you. As hard as it is and how diff as difficult it is, I'm blessing you by turning you away. And it's casual. You do not read, pray, or do many of the things you do as a Christian because that's who you are. That's giving yourself too much credit. And I think that's denying what God says about people who don't have it. Even in Romans 8, the mind of the flesh cannot please God. You just can't. You just can't. But those who have the mind of the spirit, they want to honor the Lord. Man, you do it all the time. Why? Because God has, Jesus has perfected our, our, our disobedience. He's perfected our trying to be obedient. And God sees that as like, hey, I'm rewarding these people because they're doing it in faith. They're being led by my spirit. When you share the gospel with somebody and it's awkward and it's tough and you, you're led by the spirit of God to do that. Who wants to tell people about Jesus and, and have to deal with all the fear and anxiety of rejection or a loss of friendship? You ever had to tell someone they need to believe in the Lord and you knew like if I do this, it might end our friendship? And you do it. Why? Because you want to honor the Lord and you would rather have that person be mad at you than spend eternity in hell mad that you ain't say what you should have said when they was on earth with you. This led by the spirit stuff, it's, there is supernatural activity that God does do, but that is not the norm for us. Or let me rephrase that. Supernatural to God looks more normal to us than we think it should. It's supernatural. When we read and pray. You see what God's saying? Listen, it's a supernatural work of the spirit to have the confidence to call God father. 
There are plenty of people. You ever heard? You ever been in situations where non-Christians pray? They don't intimately talk to him like he's their father. They talk to him like he's like a genie, like, all right, so, well, God, I'm just going to pray to you and hope that you. Like, it's a supernatural work of the spirit to pray and think of God as your father and to pray like that. That doesn't just come because you feel that way, because often we don't feel that way. You see, one of the confidences that my kids have of calling me poppy is because I'm there. I've been there from the beginning. I was there wiping butts from day one. And one of my sons, I knew the devil was working in his diaper. He was at work. It was like no other diapers. I've been there from the beginning. They know when they say Poppy, they know Poppy's been there. But we don't feel like that, right? Because in faith, we have to believe that when we act as God is our father, it doesn't always feel that way. But God doesn't say, look, you're going to feel me all the time. He just said, I'm going to be there all the time. It's a supernatural work of the spirit for any of us to desire to obey God and to actually resist the pleasures of the flesh that are more familiar to us than the pleasures that God says are coming our way. That's a supernatural work that just seems normal to us, so it feels like we're just doing it on our own. And that's only because we, we're a little misinformed about how righteous we are and how righteous he is. We don't do casual things. We do supernaturally casual things that are motivated by his spirit in us. Anyone can work for the homeless or do something like that. But when you're motivated to honor the Lord, that's a supernatural work of the spirit. He says this in verse 17. And if if children, so if we're children, he gives us these, this, this, he, he deepens the relational dynamic. So, so he's proving, God is proving that we can call him Abba by, by giving us more details as to what that means because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So he says this in verse 17. So if we're children, then we're also heirs, heirs of God. Heirs are people who receive an inheritance. When you're an heir of someone, that means you get an inheritance. He says we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So that means we're getting some of the inheritance that Jesus Christ is getting. So we're heirs of God, meaning he owes us. He doesn't owe us, but he's going to give us an inheritance. And then we're co-heirs with Christ because we're going to get some of the inheritance that Christ got. Why? Because we, by faith, believed in Christ, who he is. He says co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the inevitable reward. For those of us who are children, who are sons and daughters. We are heirs of God. We get an inheritance from God. That's insane to me. That is insane to me. That motivated and powered by the spirit to teach week in and week out. God is going to reward Millions and millions of preachers for their faithfulness. Now, it doesn't matter the size of your church. 
but your faithfulness is what God's going to do. And there'll be varying degrees of reward. Some people will receive more. Some people will give him more. That happens. But he says, listen, you got something coming. And some of it is going to be your sharing in what I'm giving to Jesus Christ. This is a father talking. Sharing what I'm giving Christ. Why? Because you lived by faith in Christ. Listen, God knows how difficult it is to trust him knowing what we know. He knows what we know and don't know. He knows that, man, they're making a decision in faith right now. He knows that we have no idea that we don't understand why he's allowing what's happening in our lives to happen. He knows that. He knows all of it. He is not sitting there wondering, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? He knows what you know and what you don't know. And he sees you still fighting to believe despite you not getting the answers that he's not giving you because he wants to see if you're going to persevere in faith. He knows what we don't know. Psalm 103, 14, for he remembers how we are formed, that we are only dust. He knows what we don't know. Believe me. That was at Hebrews 2. He became like the sons and daughters in every way. Jesus knows what we don't know. He knows that when you trust the Lord, that's a supernatural moment. When you read your Bible, that's a supernatural moment. When you share the gospel, that's a supernatural moment. When you resist temptation, even when you feel like giving in, that's a supernatural moment. And he knows that we're doing it only because we trust him and that he hasn't let us see him and he doesn't often let us hear him audibly and we still obey him. That's why he said to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and believe. These are supernatural moments that seem Casual and the enemy wants you to think they're casual and not supernatural. And that's not true because you would not do anything for God if the spirit of God were not living in you. Verse 18, Paul says this, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This is a bold statement from Paul. What qualifies Paul to make this statement? This is a bold statement. For, the, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's a bold statement. Now, we can say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. But no, there's reasons why Paul's making this statement. He is qualified to make this statement. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is qualified to make this statement. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 12. This is Paul talking. He said, boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. 
Now, we know that later on, it's clear Paul's talking about himself. But he doesn't want to boast in himself because he knows that he can be arrogant, which is why he talks about God sent a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being arrogant. But Paul is saying, listen, I was caught up to the third heaven and I saw paradise. I saw with my own eyes what's coming. And I heard things that are that humans aren't even allowed to express in this life. Man, you have no idea what is in store for you. I've seen it with my own eyes. He called it in verse seven, extraordinary revelations from God. Paul has seen it himself. He's seen where we're headed. He's been to paradise. This is the only person that we know of. Even La- we don't have Lazarus's story of when he came back from the dead. What did he see? But we have Paul's narrative. And he says, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. So God wouldn't allow him to come back to earth and say what he saw. But just that, man, what I saw, I can tell you right now. That the suffering in this life is nothing compared to what he's going to reveal to us. Just you wait. It's God using Paul to encourage us to persevere to the end, to believe until your last breath, because the reward is greater than the suffering. What you're going to get for making it to the end is greater than what you've given up now. This is what makes us different. What makes Christianity different, maybe other religions do this, I don't study them too much, I just study the truth. What makes Christianity different is that, listen, everyone suffers, right? We live in a world, everyone suffers. Circumstantially, everyone suffers. There is no one is exempt from suffering in this fallen world. No one. The suffering that, look, in, 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 Acts 7, in verse 17, he says this. He says this. And if children also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Because that's a different comment. So what's the suffering? What's if indeed we suffer with him. So he's saying there's an option there. Not everyone is going to suffer with Christ. Everyone's going to suffer in this life, but not everyone is going to suffer in Christ. So what does it mean to suffer with Christ? Because everyone suffers on some level, rich and poor, young and old, everyone suffers in this life. But he's saying, if indeed we suffer with Christ. He's not talking about just suffering. He's talking about something more significant. And this is actually what makes Christianity different is that we actually choose to suffer. We are choosing to suffer. This is one of the reasons why Christianity is countercultural, because we choose to suffer when nobody in their right mind chooses to suffer. Look at Hebrews 11, it'll show up on the screen. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, here's what it says. 
I've said this plenty of times, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's important to know. Hebrews 11, 24, 26, here's what it says. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. You see what it says about Moses? Moses chose to suffer. Well, how did he choose to suffer? By rejecting the fleeting pleasure of sin. Moses denied the pleasure of sin because he was looking for a better reward and God called that suffering, not just circumstantially, not just, oh, everybody gets in a car accident. Christians and non-Christians die of many various diseases. There were believers that died of COVID and non-Christians that died of COVID. There were believers that get falsely accused and then non-believers get falsely accused. There are believers that get murdered and non-believers that get murdered. He's talking about a different suffering. This is a suffering where we choose to suffer. This is different. Suffering is not just difficult circumstances because everyone suffers. Biblical suffering is not circumstantial. It's decisional. Listen, Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves, right? We know this in Luke and other passages. We know this. He hung on a cross between two thieves. The difference is he chose to be there. And if you think about that, that was the faith that was expressed by the one thief. He didn't do it. That was Abrahamic faith that he had on the cross. He didn't do any works. He was going to die soon, too. What is he going to do? But what he did was he acknowledged that Jesus doesn't deserve to suffer. He was basically saying, we're supposed to be here. He chose to be here. And then he said, you'll be with me in paradise because that's faith. You recognize that I am here on this cross by choice. And this is why Jesus said in Mark 8, he said this in Mark 8. He said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. You see, suffering, biblically speaking, is not just circumstantial. It's decisional. I'm choosing to deny myself. What? The same thing Moses did, the pleasure of sin, because I'm looking for the reward. You see, God, he understands that this is suffering. It's suffering to deny myself the pleasure of sin and to take up my cross and to resist primarily because I want to honor the Lord, not because the temptation isn't that strong. We don't resist sin because it's easy to resist it because the temptation isn't that big of a deal. When we resist, it's supernatural because it is the way, it's one of the primary ways we're carrying our cross. And God recognizes that. We suffer now to celebrate later. This is what it means that we deny ourselves. It's not just talking about circumstantial. Everyone has that. But not everyone is denying themselves because they want to honor the Lord. 
Choosing to suffer is equivalent to denying myself. Now, one distinction needs to be made. Because he says in verse 17, if indeed we suffer. You need to make this distinction. Choosing to suffer is not the same thing as choosing your suffering. Choosing to suffer is not the same thing as choosing your suffering. He chooses the suffering. We choose to suffer. When we become Christians, we don't get to sit down and look through a menu of potential trials that we'll experience. All right, Lord, yeah, I'll take uh, depression, uh, horrible marriage, and drowning as a death. And for dessert, I'll get stabbed before I die and experience that. And then, yeah, I think I'll have that. We don't get that option. Right? We don't get the option of choosing our suffering. We get to, we choose to suffer. We choose to say, Lord, whatever you bring, I'm going to trust you. And if it breaks me down, if my kids reject the faith, if my child dies before me, if my marriage is horrible, if I get a divorce, if I never get married, if I keep having miscarriage after miscarriage, if I struggle with my sexual identity, Listen, the LGBT community aren't the only people that don't choose their orient. A lot of us didn't choose anything that we have. Heterosexuality ain't a choice either. Our suffering is not a choice. The choice to suffer is, but what comes our way? I would have chosen a few things differently if I had that menu in front of me. Choosing to suffer is not the same thing as choosing our suffering. When we choose to suffer and take up our cross, God says, all right, I'm going to give you what you need to be like me. I'm going to give you what you need to be like me. I know who you are. I've made you. I know your strengths, your weaknesses. I know what makes you tick. I know, I know your, your Enneagram number. I'm going to give you what you need to be like me, to persevere in me. This is often why when people do get married, this is often why opposites attract. Because you don't need the same thing you already have. You marry somebody totally different from you. And I'm not talking about ethnicity. I mean, I know people who've got the same, they're just opposites. You just, this, I like this, I like this, I like this. And you have some commonality, but it's usually opposites attract for a reason because you bring different gifts to the table. God's going to give us what we need in this life, and it's going to be opposite of what we would choose for ourselves. But he says this, if indeed we suffer with Christ, well, what in the world does that mean? So we know we choose to suffer, but what does this mean? What does it mean to suffer with Christ? We're not going to be crucified, are we? I mean, there's some people that do that. I'm not, I'm not joining them. 
There's some, there's some, in some other nations, they got this, every Easter, they have these men who voluntarily get crucified on the cross. And yeah, I just, I don't feel the Lord calling me to do that. That is some wisdom right there. I don't know who's lying to those folks. So how do we suffer with Christ? A couple of passages, a couple of quick reviews. Quick review of the scriptures. These are sufferings that when he says suffer with Christ, it means you share in the same sufferings. You experience some of the same sufferings in Christ. Let's go through a couple things. Hebrews 5.8. This is one way we share in the suffering with Christ. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. God teaches us the same way. Listen, if you if your life were really easy and stuff, you would not really know if you trusted the Lord. You do, trusting the Lord when everything is going well is as easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. It's trusting the Lord when things don't seem to be going right at all. And he looks the opposite of the character that you know he has. And you trust him when he doesn't take away things that you're asking or doesn't give what you're asking. We learn obedience to what we suffer. We learn how to persevere. We learn how to be patient. We learn certain things to what we suffer. This is what James 1, 2 and 4 is saying, 2 through 4 is saying. It says, count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds because you are learning perseverance and perseverance must have its full effect. Listen, you don't, man, I've told you this before, man. When my mom used to take us to Kings of Meeting as a kid, she'd be like, man, be back at 4 o'clock. We get there at 10 o'clock right when it opened, we'd be back by 4 o'clock. Man, I kid you not, I went on two rides, it was 342. And not because the line was long, but because it just went by so fast. We didn't wait in long lines because me and a couple of buddies, we had this technique. We'd be like, Mom, Mom. We'd be like, excuse me, excuse me, Mom. We'd work our way up as far as we could go. I wasn't waiting in a long line. It was like, Ma, did you say, did you, Ma? And we just keep going and going to somebody be like, nah, I'm sorry, you can't. Be like, all right, cool. We cut off, okay, good. We, we made some good time. Don't judge me for it. I was a non-Christian and I was a kid. It's self-righteous. I, I sense it. I wasn't waiting in the long lines. It's like, Ma, is it Ma? This black one looking at me like, who is he talking to? I'm like, Ma, you. Yeah. All you had to do was acknowledge me. Like, hey, Mom, come here. We coming right now? Okay, come. Excuse me, excuse me. That's my mom. Excuse me. I wasn't waiting in the long lines. But you know what? It went by so fast. You know what didn't go by fast? The drive to get there. Ma, how long has it been? We left 20 minutes ago. I can't. It's taking too long. But you learn obedience through what you suffer. You don't learn obedience through what you enjoy, what's easy. You learn obedience through what's difficult because it proves that you trust the Lord. Every, shoot, we know people that thank God when they get something that's sinful. Oh, man, th- hey, thank God. Hey, God looking out for me today, man. I'm getting ready. Now, we learn obedience through what we suffer. You learn how to pray when things aren't going your way. You learn how to trust the Lord and read. You still desire to read. You learn obedience to what we suffer. Another thing that we learn, that we share with Jesus, is another way we share. We're hated because of our beliefs. John 15, 18 says this. If the world hates you, remember, understand that it hated me before it hated you. We get, we're hated because we have beliefs. We are hated. You're going to be hated for your biblical view of salvation, sexuality, identity, all of it, almost all of it. Only thing for judging. I thought you weren't supposed to judge. Judge ye not. I was like, listen, 
you would be better off if I judged you than God. Y'all can take that one. I use it. I use it a couple times. Betrayal, John 13. Betrayal. We share that with him. When Jesus said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, one of you will betray me. Now we're gonna, we're gonna, some of us are going to experience betrayal because of our faith in Jesus. Because of our faith in Jesus. I know I definitely have. You experience, I'm not talking about somebody betrayed you just like in a relational diet. I'm talking about not because of your faith in Christ. Some of us have and will experience that. Physical harm. John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed them in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Some of us have and will experience physical harm because we believe in Jesus. Hasn't happened as much in America yet, but oh, I think it's coming. Christians in other parts of the country, other parts, other parts of the world. Oh, man. You read Voice of the Martyrs. and take, Go to voiceofthemartyrs.com. Or maybe Carl and Carla, when they come up and talk about what's happening in China, they can give you some stories about what's happening to Christians over there. Or read about how the church Christianity is exploding in Iran right now. I just read an article last month. It is crazy in Iran. And guess what? It's not because of, a, of American evangelists over there, missionaries. The gospel doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He's doing work despite us. It's exploded because people are finding out about Jesus and they are telling other people about Jesus. The spirit is moving over there. You talk about supernatural. Those people get killed if they become a Christian. And the church is exploding over there. Go figure. Physical harm to the bone gristle. We'll also experience the harm of loved ones. Acts 9, Acts 7. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together they rushed them. This is against Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Jesus appears to Saul in Acts 9, 4. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus connects. And Jesus was already resurrected and ascended. He connects the persecution of his church to himself. Some of us are going to experience the harm of loved ones. I think I told you this before when I talked this some time ago. I read this article about these Egyptian women who were praising their husbands who had gotten, who had gotten kidnapped. And these, these uh, I forgot what the, it wasn't Taliban, but it was someone like that, had these men at a, some body of water. And they were videotaping them, and each of the husbands would not reject Christ. And so they cut off every one of their heads. And the women heard about it, and they were celebrating. They were sad that they lost their husbands, but they were more grateful that they did not reject Christ. They wouldn't reject Christ. And people over here say, well, I'm not a reader. <laughs> See how weird it is when you compare it to what people are going through somewhere else? See how crazy it is? I just don't read it. I'm not a reader. People are dying over there. 
They would die to have the Bible that you have, one of the Bibles you have on your shelf. We're going to experience the suffering of people believing and then not believing, like our loved ones, our children, our friends. John 6. From that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away, too, do you? We're going to experience that. Our church has experienced that. You're going to experience people who once professed to believe and you even saw signs of life in them rejected at some point. And that's painful, especially when they're really close to us. We just did an episode on my podcast about parents who are struggling with their children who have walked away from the faith. And I was getting swarms of private messages, Facebook messages, and tweets thanking him, saying, man, I cried because that was me. You read these articles about millennials are walking away from the faith in droves and these Pew Research articles, and you think, I think of all the parents that have raised their kids in the faith that have just walked away from it. That's a real thing. And it's not even the parents' fault. I can't make my kids believe. I can only hope they will, but they believe right now, but they'll wait. I want to see when they're 13, when they're 23, 22, and 19, 10 years from now. I want to see who they are then. And if they aren't believers, they ain't going to be able to say, well, because Poppy wasn't this or that. There's a pain that comes with that. People that are just unwilling to believe. Luke 19. Says this in verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what what Pete, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus is crying. He doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't weep. It doesn't say Jesus wept many times in the Bible. Twice. Once we're Lazarus in him and once coming into Jerusalem. I think those are the only two times that he wept. And he's weeping because people are unwilling to believe. Many of us experience that or will. It is painful because you think, man, this is so clear. Like I've been saying Why is it so difficult? Like, how can you not see this? Your life is a wreck. But people will be unwilling to believe. I could list many more, but the reality is this, that we share in the sufferings with Christ. These are just some of them. We're going to feel the pain of that in this life. But we keep going. We keep believing Because he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And us are sons and daughters of God who are led by his spirit, not necessarily mystically, but just practically. It's supernatural casualism. I don't know if casualism is a word, but it felt right to say it that way. (laughs) Let's pray.
Father, your word is, is, is truth. And, and my job and many others are to try to explain it in a way that's accurate and that's applicable. I know that I can't, I'm not that, there's no speaker that is so amazing that it doesn't require your spirit to, to infiltrate the hearts of those listening and to make the connections. And so, Lord, where you did that, I know that it has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with you. For you love these people way more than I do. And you care about their souls in ways that I'm just not even close to. So I pray, Father, that if there was anything that I said that pleased you, that glorified you, that was accurate today, that it would stick to the hearts of those who believe in you and would encourage them in the days and weeks to come. Help them to believe in the supernatural casualism that that just the reg the things that we just take for granted are not done apart from your spirit speaking to us. Your spirit giving us a desire to obey you, your spirit giving us emotions to cry at the thought of you dying on the cross for our sin, your spirit giving us a desire to sing songs, your spirit giving us a desire to resist Subtle to heavy temptation. Father, may we appreciate the casual supernatural element because we believe that without your spirit, we wouldn't do any of those things. Or we definitely wouldn't persevere in doing them. So, Father, I pray that today would be a, an encouragement to all of us. For, you know, you spoke to me specifically on this choosing to suffer portion and then looking at and thinking of the ways that we share in your suffering it's not mystical but it is believable for your glory and our good in jesus name we pray amen amen thank you pastor kurt um we do have a few questions all right already in and remember if you would like to um submit any questions the number is posted there for you but um in your, even in your prayer just now, you mentioned that um, it's not mystical, mm -hmm. and yet some people have been to churches where they emphasize either being baptized a certain way or like speaking in tongues to verify that someone is a believer. And uh, we have a person that's uh, texted in and just wanted to know if you could speak to that, just to encourage them, because they've sometimes questioned the validity of their salvation based on churches like that. All right, let me, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna let the scripture talk this time, because I'm not because I'm I'm, I'm I'm kind of getting tired of this one, not the question, but the the bamboozling of teachers teaching stuff like this. So let's we're gonna open the book this time. Let's go to Acts chapter sixteen. Let's go. All right, Acts chapter sixteen. Phil, if you can do this, it's 16. We're going we're gonna to do, just do a whole chapter, but we're going to look at 11 through 15 first. We're going to look at three passages. I'm just going to let the passage speak. I'm getting tired of people getting, getting, getting lied to like this. I mean, I did, man, we need, man, you know what, man? Man, we could, uh, Man, we want to do a series when we're done with Romans on lies Christians believe. Yeah, but if I do it now, people are going to be angry. 
There's people right over here that this is their favorite book. They're like, man, when are you going to get back in the book? <laughs> right, listen, beginning at verse 11, listen to this. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for uh, Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Okay, where does it say she spoke in tongues? Where does it say that she spoke in tongues, Lydia or her household? As a matter of fact, she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, if she had spoken in tongues, it would have probably been more obvious the spirit was working, right? There's no tongues referenced here at all. In other parts, they do reference people spoken in tongues. There's no tongues referenced here in this passage. Go down to, to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them. Out, out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke, to the, they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced. He had come to believe in, the, in God with his whole entire household. No mention of tongues, mention of salvation. Now, the reason why I'm choosing the book of Acts because all that, all that people are saying comes from the book of Acts. Because if they, if they actually read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, there is no, Paul actually says that speaking in tongues, not everyone speaks in tongues. And that he doesn't even want everyone to speak in tongues, but he would rather everyone prophesy. That's 1 Corinthians 14. I'm only reading the book of Acts because all that fake theology comes out of what the, and let me tell you why. Because people take what the Bible described and make it equivalent to what the Bible demands. There's a difference between description and prescription. What the Bible tells us we need to do is different than when it describes some things that happen. Let's go one more, one more, Acts 8. Let's go here, Acts 8. You got to work on your material somewhere else. Let's go to Acts 8. Phil, we're going to do 26... 26 through 30, 35. Actually, no, through 40. 26 through 40 of Acts 8, Phil. That's just for the party people watching at home. All right, here's what happens. Acts 8, 26. And an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So we got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was waiting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, 
go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. This is from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is, this, who is the prophet saying, about, saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So we ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. No mention of tongues. No mention of tongues. Not at all. No mention. But yet, when they go down to Samaria, the disciples lay hands on the Samaritans, and they speak in tongues. Why does that happen? Here's what most people think. That tongues was, if you go back to Acts 2, the reason why people spoke in tongues, what, what, what Peter was saying from the book of Joel was that God is fulfilling a promise that he made that he would have the sons and daughters prophesy and do these things. So tongues represented, wait a minute, something is happening here. Because the people were watching were like, how are you speaking my language? They weren't even speaking in different. They were speaking in languages that weren't their language to prove that the spirit and the new covenant was at work. And so there were moments when God allowed people to speak in tongues to demonstrate for them. This is a genuine. The Holy Spirit is genuinely working. This conversion is real. Like the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. But not everyone speaks in tongues. In the book of Acts, there's plenty of there's some that speak in tongues immediately. Some that it says it never does. So this idea that people are teaching that is not biblical. They are taking what the Bible describes and making it what the Bible demands, and they are hurting a lot of people. You have the spirit upon conversion. If the spirit, tongues is a gift. That's all tongues is. Tongues is a gift, like other things. It is not, it is not what every believer gets. It's not, it's not, tongues is a gift because of salvation. Tongues isn't salvation. It's ridiculous to think so. I could go on for, I could do a sermon series right now on that. Because a lot of people are, are, are being hoodwinked by that. Off the Malcolm X, you've been hoodwinked, you've been bamboozled, you've been run amok. <laughs> it's just not true. And any of, them, any of those pastors that want to talk about it, let's, let's talk about it. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, this person texts in about the comment you made about uh, judging that it's better for me to judge you than God. And um, <laughs> out of everything I said, that's the comment. That's the question. It's followed by a question. Though. No, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just kidding. And, and, and that question is, I thought God is more merciful than man. <laughs> he is. I was joking when I said that. That was not a theological statement. It was a Kurt-ism. I was just joking when I said that. God is more merciful than man. But there are some people, but what I meant by judging you is that it'd be better for me to tell you about your sin right now than God tell you about your sin in his presence. That's what I meant. So I was joking when I said it, but what I meant was 
man, you want me to explain this to you now because you don't want to stand before God having rejected him, and he tells you about your sin. So God is more merciful when you believe in him. There's no mercy in hell. It's the absence of mercy. So that's what I meant, but I was joking when I said that, when I said that phrase. But I appreciate that. Keep me on my toes. Well, when you see who it's from, you know they like to keep you on your toes. Right. Well, you got to come stronger than that. <laughs> when you see who it's from, no. no. <laughs> um, so uh, this next question, the person says, uh, you mentioned in your sermon uh, the importance of maintaining joy during adversity. Mm. Do you have any practical steps for doing so? So here's what I would do. Yes, that's a good question. I think, okay, so we talked about the supernatural casualism, right? I think one of the things that I would do is this. We tend to think of ways that we want to honor the Lord and thank God. We tend to think of those in ways that I think are too, like, wonderful for me, right? We need to kind of get back to the specifics and just think of, and we've talked about this before, start with joy for the things that you clearly have already. See, we're always aware of what we want, but sometimes we forget to thank him for what we, that we, that we always, we're always aware of what we want, but we have what we need, many of us. I, I, and I, I don't know who the person asked the question. I would make some assumptions that the fact that you're able to watch this means you have some type of technological device that allows you to do so, which means you're in some particular place that maybe has Wi-Fi or, or you're able to afford some kind of contraption that allows you to watch this online, right? You, or you may be here. But the real, if you got here, then you got here some way. That means you're breathing and you're listening. You're fully clothed and you probably ate. All those things are things like, man, thank the Lord, because you know what? There are people in other parts of the country and in the world that do not have that. There are people that we go out once a month as a church to go feed and help to. And those people don't know. I've watched homeless people watch people throw a McDonald's food in the trash, and they go in right after and get it. And you and I be like, oh, my gosh, I would never do that because you ain't never been that hungry. There are people that do not have what you already have. And I think we have to learn to, to give God the credit for the things that seem casual that are actually a gift of his grace. And even just like I think, I mean, sometimes I just thank God for just the ability to think clearly, like just to even have a coherent thought, to wake up and to be able to breathe and not have any trouble with my breathing, to, to I, the fact that I'm able to complain about something, you know, just... There are things that God has done that we're just so like oblivious to because they're so normal to us. But even the smallest thing. So I would start looking at and finding joy in the most smallest things that God has done for you. And that will help you appreciate the bigger things. But when you don't appreciate the smaller things, you complain about not getting the bigger things. And so I would switch it. Let's, let's, let's find the smaller things and say, you know what, Lord, thank you. Like, I'll get home sometimes and be like, Lord, thank you. I didn't get in an accident. Thank you. What, what, you think you're that good of a driver? I mean, like, people could, it, even if you are, someone could just be not on their game. Yeah, boom. And hit your car. Like, the fact that you get there, all those things, to me, are a gift from the Lord. I thank him that that doesn't happen. I think we overlook those things because, I mean, you ever been tired while you're driving, even not know? Man, I've been tired and not, I mean, my wife sometimes would be scared, like, babe, hi. You know, because sometimes you're tired and you're not off. I said, man, babe, I'm all right. I just took a long blink. <laughs> and she doesn't laugh. But, but I mean, like, 
I mean, I, you know, you guys aren't here, hey, man, Pastor Kirk got in a serious car accident. It's like, that's not because I'm a good driver or because everybody's on their toes. That's because I give credit to the Lord for that. So find the little things that you want to thank God for, and that'll help you appreciate the bigger things. If we don't appreciate the bigger things, it's because we don't, we're waiting for the bigger things, it's because we're neglecting thanking them for the little things. All right, thank you. Um, I have one, one more question here. Um, and that question is <clears throat> with an explanation ahead of the question. Um, so during the weekdays, I don't have good devotional time and uh, know it throws my day off, but also just feel so tired during the week. How do I not beat myself up about that? And then they ask, is there any part of this beating myself up also conviction to read my Bible more? I think, so there's, there's two things with that question like that. One, the question, the first part of it, beating myself up, makes an a could be, could be making an assumption that your relationship with God, from God's perspective, is measured by how much you read. And that's just not how God measures it. Because, as a matter of fact, if it is, find me a passage in the New Testament that commands you to read your Bible every day. Spoiler alert, you won't find it. So again, that's a product of our love of God. But it's not a command from God that we're, it's just different. So, one, we have to remember a couple things. One, that God already knows who we are. Like I said in the message, he knows what we know and don't know. He knows the types of seasons that we'll be in. Listen, I go through seasons where I'm just not reading on my game. I got a lot going on, and I'm not reading as much. I'm not praying as much as I could be, because this is it. and God understands that those are seasons that we go through. I don't want it to be characteristic of my life, but I think there are going to be times where, look, man, I'm just, it, is, it is what it is right now. So what I want to do is I want to, whatever I can, whatever I feel like I can give God, I want to give God, right? Remember in, in uh, when God was, when Jesus was watching people give tithes in the, in the temple and there was a woman, an old woman who gave like two pennies or something like that. It was a, two bits. And Jesus said she gave more than everyone. And the reason she didn't give more than everyone from a financial standpoint. Because there were people who were rich. They gave out of what they had. Jesus explained, they gave out of the abundance that they have. So if you got $10,000 and you give up $1,000, you got $9,000. But if you got $2 and you give up $2, you don't have nothing. So Jesus was saying, look, she gave what she had, even though she didn't have much to give. And she gave more than everyone else because it was the spirit. It was her heart. It was, I'm giving my all. And I think God, sometimes we were too hard on ourselves. God recognizes the seasons that we're in. The seasons where you're more difficult, you're more tired, there's a lot going on. God recognizes that. So figure out what, what can I give God and make sure I be faithful to do that. Even if it's little in comparison to maybe previous seasons. All right, that's number one. Number two, don't ignore, though, the, and you have to evaluate conviction and condemnation, right? Condemnation tells you how horrible of a person you are because you're not doing something. Conviction doesn't really do that. Conviction, it really tells you you could be doing this. You should be doing this. You need to do this. So if you feel like, and, and, and let me explain what I mean in, in practical details. I don't know who this is. I don't know what your life is like. But if you spend, like, say, a lot of time, let's just say on social media and stuff like that, but you find it hard to read, 
I think that God would say, uh, you, could call, you could probably scale back there. You could probably scale back for binge watching the show and give me 20 minutes of that. You know what I mean? Like I, so I, can't, I don't know who you are enough to evaluate your life. I, I don't know. Some people are that busy. Some people, though, find time to do something. Like if you got a commute time, I, I, I pray in my commute. I'm driving. Let me pray while I'm driving. Or let me listen to scriptures or let me try to memorize something while I'm driving. And, that, and, that, and, that, and if that's all I give God, that's something. I want to give God at least two bits every day. Something. Because I think he's worthy of that. So, again, you have to figure out, is, am I, do I really not have time? Or am I just like I'm just tired and don't feel like it? Man, get, God knows you're tired. He understands that. The season that you're in, he knew you were going to do that before the foundation of the world. The question is, what does faithfulness look like when you're tired? What is, y'all making me feel like I actually have to stand up. I ain't even cracking no jokes in your life. Look, the, the, the thing is, what, what does faithfulness look like when you're tired, when you're busy? Faithfulness still matters. It's just it looks differently when you're tired, when you're busy. When you're a young mom, when you're a mom with young kids, man, you're going to look way different than, than when, they, when you ain't got no kids. When your kids get old, it's just going to look different. So you have to figure out what does faithfulness look like but what are the two bits that I can give to God? Be faithful to do that. All right. Thank you. Um, this next question is a piggyback. And actually, um, the person that asked the first question about speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. they also asked this question, but uh, after you elaborated, but someone else did does as well. Um, can you speak specifically um, can you speak to specifically that baptism is a requirement for genuine conversion and receiving the Holy Spirit? This person, as well as the person who texted in earlier, were taught that, com- uh, that conversion in the Holy Spirit don't come until baptism. Okay. Um, so here's the problem with that. Just one, the first example that comes to my mind is the thief on the cross. So here he can't get baptized. It's not even possible. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So now you can say, well, he couldn't. That's not the point. Jesus, if baptism was what Jesus would have said, well, you, you cannot be accepted into the kingdom because you can't get baptized. You will die in your sins. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So baptism is not salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is salvation. Romans 10, 9 and, t- 10, 9 and 10. And we'll get there and, 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 and promise in the next three years. And it, it, it clearly says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. We get baptized as an outward expression of the inward work that God is doing. And in the early days of the church, that, that baptism, it one, imitated Jesus being baptized, and two, it demonstrated genuine faith in Jesus because anyone could say, I believe, but then they got baptized. That baptism was conditioned upon, it's supposed to be, baptism, we see this in, in Romans 6. It is a, it, it is a it is a reality that represents a, a spiritual reality where you go down into the waters like you're dying like Jesus died on the cross and you're coming back up out of the water renewed like Jesus was coming out, you know, out from the grave. It does not mean if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. But I think the church in church history, the early church did connect 
not salvation as much to baptism, but at least the sacraments. So if you weren't baptized in the early church, they wouldn't let you take communion because they saw baptism as the first sacrament. Me and Mike kind of agree with that. We think believers should be baptized because, the, you know, the Bible, I mean, you saw it in the, in the gospel presentations that I read. I read three different stories. They got baptized right away. Now, again, it was a different time and things are different. But I do think believers should get baptized because one, it imitates the Lord. And two, it is part of what the church has always believed it should happen. That's different, though, than you're not saved if you get baptized. I, that's just not even biblical. It's a good question, though. These are good questions. I appreciate it. Um, okay. This question um, is one I'm going to take a stab at making it a question. Um, because one of those. There's, well, there's not a question mark behind the statement, and this statement is is long because they're trying to describe that they are like they just began walking with the Lord. Mm. Um, they struggle with drinking, and sometimes to the point of, of continuing to get drunk. So they would like to know, uh, and, and when they do that, they have conviction about it, and um, but they know it hinders them spiritually. Um, based on, you know, what you were talking about, about um, the spirit, you know, testifying with us and them seeing that they have this thing that they know doesn't glorify God. Like, could you could you encourage them in some kind of way in terms? Can you give them some hope? Is there any hope for this person? Mm-hmm. Plenty. Amen. Plenty. First. The process of growing in Jesus is very much a process. The Bible calls it sanctification, which is a process of turning away. So it's like a 180. Don't do a 360 because that puts you right back where you started, right? We do 180s, okay? Some people do a 180. Some people hit every degree of that 180 before they turn around, but they're turning, right? I'm at 132 right now, (laughs) turning. When you have something like, like alcohol and alcoholism or an addiction to that or a strong pull to that, some people do experience an instantaneous grace that allows them to be free from the slavery of that particular sin. But not all people do. And your cross that you have to carry will be different in the sense that one, you need, you need discipleship. You need people with you, practically speaking. You cannot do this alone. Or you should not do this alone. You need others around you. You need people that will encourage you and remind you of truth. You need an outlet. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And that God does not give you anything that you can't handle but people think that he doesn't give you a temptation you can't handle. No, he doesn't give you a temptation you can't handle without a way of escape. Right? So there is a way of escape for you with that. And it may not be, it may be hard to find right now because you're new with the faith, you're new in believing, and so forth. Listen. One, the fact that you express faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that you wrote this question in and you experience conviction is proof that the Holy Spirit is in you. So you wouldn't even care about this if the spirit wasn't in you. 
So don't, don't be fooled by the fact that your guilt is an expression of your salvation. The fact that you care about this, the spirit is at work. So the things that you'll have to do, there, there's no easy way to say this. There's no take two scriptures and call you in the morning. There's gonna, it's going to require significant work. And you may need, you're going to need others, a church. You may need even something like Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a, we have a meeting here. We still meet on Mondays, right? Is it still Monday nights? I think it's get, virtual. It's virtual, yeah, okay. Yes. There's a meeting that we hear. As a matter of fact, please contact Mike and I. We'll give you some, some more practical things. But, but you, you, you may need some of those things, but those things are not the fact that you need to grow and you need time. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how long you struggle. There, it, listen, Jesus told a parable. That, so I, I spoke about it earlier in Mark 4. When he got to the end of the, the seeds dropping, Jesus said, some will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? You know what that meant? 30 is successful, 60 is successful, and 100 is successful. God sees progress and faithfulness in 30, 60, and 100. Not everyone's going to get to 100. Some people will get to 30, 60, and 100. You might be at 10 on your way to 30, 60, or 100, but you're in the race. So be encouraged that your desire, that you're wanting help, is from the Lord. Now there's some practical things you may need and learn how do I resist temptation. Because you have to also, the last thing I'll say, is you have to put on. See, with a lot of us, what we do is we try to stop doing something, but we don't put something in its place. So if you try to say it's, say it's, Say like tonight, you go, okay, man, I, I, I agree with this sermon, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to resist, and I'm not going to drink tonight. And you're doing everything you normally would do except trying not to drink. Good luck. Because about 9.30, you're going to be like, man. I mean, if I just take a sip. I mean, that's, I mean listen, man, I'm not even trying to be funny. People are laughing because they think it's funny. I'm not even trying to be funny. This is how we rationalize it. I do it. You do. We all do it. Right. This is how we rationalize it. You need to say, I'm going to do something else in that place. I'm not going to sit here. And if if it's why I can't go anywhere. Okay, cool. I'm going to read something. I'm going to watch something. I'm going to throw the Bible on. I'm going to put the sermon on again. Do whatever you can to say, I'm going to I'm going to put this off by putting this on. Don't just try to stop drinking. Put on something else in its place. Put on some, some type of godly thing. And if you need someone to call, contact us again through the app and we'll, we'll, we'll connect you and, and try to work with you through it. But, but listen, praise God for you. Stay in there. Stay in the fight. The enemy always goes after your, for your identity first. He's always going to make you think you're faking because you're still drinking. When Jesus, man, that thief on the cross couldn't stop doing nothing. And he said, you're coming with me to paradise. It may take you time, but it's going to take intentionality but it doesn't mean you didn't pick up your cross. All right? Amen. Well, this last one is not a question. It's a uh, confession and a revelation. The person who had the question about God being more merciful than man was your mom. And she, went, she said, yes, she did it to keep you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Ma. My mom been keeping me on my toes since, since they formed. So I'm grateful. My mom is always going to keep me on my toes. But you know what, though? My mom is always one of the first people to text me and say good message. And there's no better encouragement than, than getting a message from your mom that she's watching you preach. 
and I am grateful for that. So thank you, Ma. I appreciate that. All right, don't forget, uh, one another meeting Wednesday. I will not be there because my birthday's Tuesday. I'm chilling. So I won't be there. You can put all the Amazon gift cards and, and give them to Jasmine if you have them. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but I'll, but I'll uh, be, um, don't forget, we have one another this Wednesday. And, and listen, stay focused. Stay in there. Stay focused. Stay focused. Supernatural casualism. It's casual. It's don't. It's, 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 it's not not doing something. It's not as supernatural as you want it, but you wouldn't do it if God wasn't in you causing you to desire to do it. All right. All right. We'll see you this week. Don't forget to pray. Don't forget to read. Do whatever you can to fight. And we'll see you when we see you.